Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete with me, Emma Gannon. Today's guest is Sarah Ellis, who spent the first part of her career working in marketing and corporate responsibility for brands including Boots, Barclays and Sainsbury's. She co-founded Amazing If as a side hustle alongside her friend Helen Tupper. They describe their path as being accidental entrepreneurs and they recognise that the world of linear and predictable career ladders are disappearing. Instead, careers are now much more squiggly where we're changing roles, industries and careers more frequently and fluidly or we're even becoming multi-hyphenates as I write about. Together, they want to help anyone and everyone develop the skills to succeed in a squiggly career in a way that's useful and relevant for today's world of work. Sarah has an MBA from Warwick Business School and has studied at both London and Harvard Business Schools. I really recommend you getting a copy of The Squiggly Career. It's Sarah and Helen's first book. And you can also listen to the weekly podcast they do called Squiggly Careers. And I've been on there as a guest recently as well. If you like this episode, please do rate and review it. And I will see you again soon. So I'm very excited to be joined by Sarah Ellis, one half of the Squiggly Career movement, book, (laughs) podcast, everything. Would you be able to start off by sort of telling the listeners who might not know your background a bit about your Squiggly Career? Because it's really fascinating. Thank you for inviting me today. Yeah, so I suppose both Helen and I, uh, we started our lives, like lots of people, working uh, in companies, in office jobs, um, and we did that very happily for a really long period of time. I think the thing that changed is when we started in those companies, we thought we were going to be climbing career ladders. And actually, we didn't have a problem with that. We were both really ambitious and driven, and we were like, right, okay, so the job to do here is to climb this career ladder to some sort of top. I don't think we were quite sure what the top was, but I think we imagined it was going to be quite Nirvana-like. It was like, ooh, something shiny and magical was going to happen when you get to the top of that career ladder, and then that would be it. That, That would be your career. And I think what happened for us is probably quite quickly, five or six years into our careers, still working in very big kind of corporate environments, we started to realise that career ladder thing just didn't feel relevant or useful or reflective of our own experiences or the teams we were leading. We were like, actually, this is not really a thing anymore because there's so much change and movement now around us and in our own careers We were moving in and out of different departments, starting to do kind of side projects on the side before that was even like a phrase that people started to assign as being super cool. Uh, People were volunteering. And I felt actually very early on in my career, I'd already started to kind of do the portfolio thing, even though I was in a corporate environment. And it started to make me really question, oh, okay, so maybe success isn't getting to the top of a career ladder that I'd kind of made up and perhaps what I'd seen in terms of some of the people I'd worked for and how careers are written about. Maybe it's more about doing a number of different things and I think realising that careers are just lasting so much longer than they were previously, a much bigger part of our identity. It's quite a cheesy phrase, but this idea of I do think you've got to enjoy it along the way now, not just aim for this destination where suddenly everything becomes shiny because actually... I think that's a bit of a false economy anyway. So yeah, we were not doing, you know, weren't doing super cool creative jobs at the time or anything like that. We were in big corporates and and, and enjoying it and stayed in those big corporates for, you know, a long period of time. But we started to realise that even in, you know, I was working in Sainsbury's, a 150-year-old organisation, I could still be really squiggly there. Mm -hmm. And then I've gone on and probably got squigglier and squigglier, to be honest, as the time's gone on. 
and probably as I started to accept that that was okay. It's really great because I think um, there's so much similarity in your book when I was reading it to the multi-hyphen method in terms of kind of doing many different things but also not being afraid or embarrassed by wanting to work on many different projects and like change things up and I don't know leave a job and start a new one and because historically that's sort of been frowned upon hasn't it you know that there was like the dreaded like stay two or three years in a job even if you hate it for LinkedIn purposes (laughs) but definitely don't leave a job with nothing to go to that's really what I remember my parents saying to me I remember hating a job I'd made a massive mistake got into a job where I'd not understood what it was going to be and I was awful at it and it made me miserable but the idea of leaving a job without a job to go to was just unheard of and unthinkable now there's the practical realities of can you afford to do that but even, you know, be able to afford it for like a couple of months or perhaps doing something different. It was like, no, no, you must make sure you've got your next permanent job and it must look a certain way or perhaps you're working for a certain type of company. I do think that's changing now. Certainly when I first started work, I didn't know anyone who worked freelance at all. Whereas actually now I'm surrounded by loads of people, um, you know, starting out their careers and actually very quickly moving to freelance and you know we work with quite a few of those people in our businesses yeah it's just funny that people still think it's a risky such a risky thing like so brave and it's like (laughs) well half the population now are freelance like it's very very normal but I wondered I mean I got that from the book but I actually think that's something that's very very unique to the squiggly career is what you just said about this can be inside a corporation I think in my book I very much rebel against the like I don't even want to work for a corporation anymore (laughs) I just want to do my own thing and be a multi-hyphenate over here but actually what is really important I think that a book like this exists to say actually we kind of need to make it work in these big companies it's no it's no good just all of us going like just leaving and and like putting a finger up to it and I don't think that is for everyone either having done both um having been in very big organizations uh, and now and now running my own business and you know you and I have both spoken to loads of different people who have lots of different sort of work types and different identities I think you know being freelance or running your own business is incredibly hard work often the kind of shiny surface that people see they they see less the kind of the what's happening underneath the surface which I think is still working really hard and kind of long hours and you can't always choose all of your projects and it takes time and it takes perseverance and there's no kind of magic bullet I think in any of those different kind of ways of working and I think you have got to choose the way of working that means um, you can sort of live your values so the things that really motivate and drive you And I think different environments work better for different sorts of values. Mm. So actually, you know, I was really happy in lots of the very big organisations I was in. I quite enjoyed kind of working within a framework, within a structure. And I managed to have jobs that gave me quite a lot of freedom. So I was almost kind of the, I often described, I was sort of the weird and wonderful one. In I think I might have added the wonderful bit, I'm not sure. Um, but I was often the one doing the kind of the entrepreneurial bit in a big organisation. And that's incredible because those organisations have a lot of impact. They have a lot of scale. I was doing things like corporate responsibility for Sainsbury's and they're donating £60 million a year to charity. So I was doing, I felt like I was doing an awful lot of good and getting so much valuable experience working for some brilliant people. And though I love running my own business and... I kind of can't think of anything better now that I do it. I certainly don't look back and think, oh, actually, I wish I'd done it sooner. You know, some people have that, oh, now I've made the leap. I should have gone sooner. Mm. 
I don't think I should. I think I'd done it at the right time for me, at the right moment in my life, and in quite a pragmatic way, which is probably quite boring, but mm, yeah. the reality, I guess. No, 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 that's really good. I felt the same in terms of when I worked in big companies when you you can't you kind of are employee number XXX. Yeah, yeah. And you are a cog in a big machine, but if that framework was just a tiny bit more flexible, mm. I think I probably would have stayed there. Yeah. So it's like t- times need to change, I guess. Yeah, and I think I'm starting to see organisations embrace things like um, flexibility. And I think this idea of uh, not about being presenteeism or always being at your desk, it's much about outcomes and impact and wanting people to be able to work in different ways. I heard a really great phrase the other day that actually I think it's all of our jobs, but I think particularly you need it in big companies to be very clear on what you need people to achieve. And if you have full clarity on that, you can then give loads of freedom as to the how. Mm. And I I actually really liked that because I think in my experience, when I had the most freedom in kind of big organisations, it's where I'd got a leader or was working with people who you knew exactly what you needed to do, what success looked like. And then they really trusted you. You got so much trust and so much space and freedom. And they're the jobs where I really thrived and like almost discovered my strengths, probably where I gave so much to those jobs, so much kind of discretionary effort to those jobs. And then loved it, really, really enjoyed it. And then it's the jobs where you feel like you're being micromanaged. Yeah. You know, you feel like it's much more about how long you're sitting at your desk for or you seem to be in the right meetings. That's where it just becomes a bit of a kind of relentless, you know, tough going to work every day. And you just feel like, oh, is this really worth it given the amount of effort and impact we all want to have in our jobs now? And I do think that's a challenge for people because... Work is such a big part of our identity now compared to, I think, even our parents' generation. So, you know, I've already had more jobs and worked in more organisations than my dad. And that's not unusual for, I suspect, lots of people listening. And I do think that puts quite a lot of pressure on people. I think people get, the minute a job's maybe not perfect or are they, you know, they're living all their dreams. And I think because people see through social media and stuff that happening... Uh, I do get worried that people put a lot of stress on themselves to be finding the perfect opportunity. Whereas in my experience, I think it's um, almost a series of making better choices and decisions each time, if that makes sense. I think that's what I got a lot better at as I progressed through my career was thinking, is this the right choice for me? Mm-hmm. Versus is this the right choice, uh, what I think my family think I should do or what I think my boss thinks I should do? Do I think I'm going to enjoy this? And is it giving me more opportunity to do things that I'm good at, that I'm really going to enjoy. And then I just got better at making those decisions. And that sometimes doesn't mean always getting promoted. It might mean moving sideways into a different team. It might mean, uh, you know, for me, it meant working less days at Sainsbury's so that I could spend one day on Amazing If My Business Now. And again, I didn't do that because I thought I was going to run my business full time. I just did it because I thought I'd really enjoy it. Mm. And ultimately, of course, there's that fear of, okay, so what will people think of me working four days and going off and running my own business on this other day? But I decided I had to sort of focus more on what mattered to me versus what other people were going to think. Yeah. But it takes a lot of bravery, I think, and um, confidence to do that. And I was still really nervous even asking to do that, to work four days a week, because I was being promoted at the same time. So I was like, oh, do we have to get promoted? Oh, and while you're at it, I'd like to work a bit less. Yeah, good. (laughs) But then also, you know, it's a permission slip for the other people who might be looking at you. I did exactly the same. I I asked for four days a week and I was like 27. (laughs) And and then someone else over there has got like three kids and hasn't asked. And, and, And actually that can be an issue with office politics because, you know, why should you get that just because you asked for it but if you make a case for it yeah I think it's because I think people have spent a long time working in the same way 
and in the same processes. So I do think it is a big ask for people to always kind of have the bravery. And I do think organisations have a responsibility to make that possible, Mm. to create an environment where it's encouraged, where there's good role models that are kind of shared, you know, the stories of role models are shared in the organisation, that things like flexibility feel like they're for everyone not just for people like us maybe who are brave enough to ask for mm. it or or just for parents or anything you know things like that and I think often to you know people get put in sort of boxes and you understand why because it makes things easier for people to compartmentalize and go oh well they want to work flexibly because they're a parent I work more now since having a kid than I did beforehand and I think just make getting rid of these kind of assumptions around we have to work in the same way that we've always worked and I would really encourage people to just go, let's just try it. Let's just try working in a different way. Because in my experience, if you give people that freedom, they absolutely thrive. Mm-hmm. 99% of the time, people do brilliant work and you get rewarded and you see people's potential and unexpected strengths and value and opportunity come to the fore, often by giving people very small amounts almost in in return. So... Yes, we definitely want people to be brave, and but I do think organisations also need to create environments where it's easier to be brave. Mm, totally, and it just seems seems like quite a simple solution on the surface, but I think you know when you're saying these companies who that have been around for years and years and years. I I can imagine why it's scary to change things. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings who just want a little bit of freedom, I think. And it's like just being told on a granular level how to work can be so off-putting. I love the book so much because it's so practical and I think people are going to get so much from that and it actually is quite like squiggly in the fact that you kind of need to yes. read it with a pen <laughs> yeah, and do. write loads of stuff down. But um, I just wanted to pick up on a few topics that are in the book so I, th- I thought they were really helpful. The first thing was playing to your strengths. Mm-hmm. So it's actually something that I've only just recently realised is so important in terms of we're all really good at stuff but we're probably not all good at everything unless you're like some overachiever listening right now. <laughs> um, but there are certain things that I'm I know I'm incredibly good at but it's like incredibly niche like a thing that's like kind of like that's the one thing I'm good at and then I kind of don't under like I try and then spend my energy on getting better at the things I'm not good at when mm. actually I should just hone that strength so yeah. yeah that was kind of like a bit of a whoa moment when I was reading your book I wondered if you yeah. could talk a little bit about that so I would always recommend that people spend around 80% of their time making their strengths stronger Uh, you know, turning some of those strengths into what we would describe as super strengths and 20% of your time mitigating any weaknesses that are relevant to your current role or something you'd like to do in the future, but only so you're good enough. And I think that good enough phrase is actually quite helpful for people to remember. Yeah. Because if you try to be brilliant at everything, Mm -hmm. even those overachievers you talked about, I guarantee most of the overachievers that I know have actually got really good at their super strengths. That's how they're overachieving. It's not by being brilliant at everything. Even the chief executives I've spent time with, they are so clear about this is how I add an overwhelming amount of value in these areas. And then actually what they're really smart at doing is getting the right people around them to fill the gaps in the areas they need. And outsource anything that you're not very good at. Yeah, exactly. And so I think It's sometimes hard for people to think about their strengths because, you know, sometimes we're our own worst critics and people have got really lovely humility. But I would start by thinking about in any job or any organisation, you are employed for the value that you add. So be really clear about what that value is and make sure that you're communicating that. Make sure you're talking about that and putting that to use Mm -hmm. because... 
when people use their strengths, that's when it's something like you're six times more engaged and productive, just generally. Because it's things you're naturally good at, yeah. you then over-invest in them, you're then even better at those things. And that's how your organisation will also get all of the value from you. So this is not just about you winning, this is also about your teams and your organisations winning. So this is, most of the organisations I know have started to really embrace this now because they do understand that, to be honest, there's loads in it for them in terms of getting this right. And actually, if we all know what each other's strengths are as well, that's how we can work together really effectively so if you and I are working together and you know oh well like when I work with Helen I'm brilliant at kind of developing quite abstract kind of big ideas what Helen is really brilliant at is turning those ideas into something really tangible kind of making those things happen Mm -hmm. and so neither of us spend too much time worrying about trying to do the other thing but what we do try to do is think about okay so how do we work together really constructively and usefully to bring those strengths together to kind of create value for our business. But yeah, I think that 80-20 rule is definitely worth bearing in mind. And if you're not sure where to start on your strengths, if you're thinking, I don't know what I'm good at, which actually comes up quite a lot when we do workshops with people, people don't know, sometimes other people are a really good place Mm -hmm. to start. So one of the exercises um, we encourage people to do is just ask a friend, a family member and someone you work with for three words to describe you. And that's it. That's all, you, that's all you're looking for is just three words. And it's incredible how in those three words you get insight into how you show up, where you add loads of value. 99.9% of the time, those words are always really nice. It's a, actually quite a joyful exercise to do. Or if you're being very practical at work, asking for strengths-based feedback like, you know, where do I add most value in this project at the moment? Where do you see me at my best in this team? Whichever kind of words and phrases feel you know, relevant to you and like things you would actually say out loud. Mm. I think, yeah, if you're if you're feeling a bit stuck on strengths um, and you're kind of not in the, oh, I know them, I just need to spend more time on them. You're like, I don't even know what they are. Get the people around you to help you discover what they are. And then once you know what they are, then you can kind of choose to overinvest in them. Yeah, it's such good advice. I had a recent, um, I set up a meeting and it was with like a kind of, external agency to basically like strategize for next year and um it was a bit weird but I kind of heard like my colleagues like talk about me even though (laughs) I was in the room and then we just kind of tried to whittle it down to like the thing that is working yeah and it was like okay I'm just gonna stick to that then and then I can everyone else can help me with the other bits like I don't need to be good at everything it's actually quite a relief yeah I think it's quite liberating is to just think this is where I'm really great. This is and and actually, um, I think you choose your super strengths. I think that's that's an important point because there will be quite a few strengths that we all have, but I think you choose the things that you decide. Right, I'm going to really overinvest in those things because those things don't become super strengths by accident. They become super strengths because you look for projects where you're going to get to use those strengths. Right. You invest in your own learning in those areas. So, you know, you're a brilliant writer and you can write both fiction and non-fiction, which is, I find, amazing. And so you might be going, right, well, you know, writing and actually being really ambidextrous in my writing is one of my super strengths. But that doesn't mean you're going to stop writing and just very occasionally think, I'm going to write a book. You know, you'll be thinking about all the different types of writing. You'll probably still go and learn from other writers. You might spend the time on writing retreats, all of those kind of things. But when you're thinking about how you spend your time, it then really helps you to prioritise and make decisions because you would know if you were going, right, the writing one is a really important thing for me. I know that's top of the list. Mm. And so when other distractions come in or other potentially shiny, you know, things that might be exciting projects 
you just know that ultimately the writing thing is is you know that's got to be protected and that's a really good use of your time because that's what yes. you're trying to get to be a super strength and also in terms of business i mean like you just hinted to when you think about a ceo for example who has like an amazing super strength that's sort of where you can charge a value on a strength right yeah so yeah, for yeah. example you know if if someone is having an hour of your time with your super strength that is something that you can run a business or monetize in some way yeah, to be and, frank about it. Yeah, and I think if you were, you know, if you are someone listening and thinking, oh, this is the year that I do want to run my own business, or this is the year I'm going to try freelancing, I would very, really encourage people to start with, okay, think about what your strengths are. If you're not clear about them, get clear on them first, perhaps before you take that leap. I, I think that you know is really important and helpful. And then think about how are you going to use them in that new business, in that freelancing capacity. And of course, there'll be stuff that you have to do that you might not be quite so good at but how do you make sure that you're kind of good enough that you're efficient that you still that those things you still have to tick those boxes because most of us um until we become the CEOs of either our own big companies or big companies you can't always have people around you to do everything yes so what that doesn't mean is um you know you still have to do some spreadsheets or some invoices I'm just you know Mm -hmm. using a few few of my uh, (laughs) own examples here but I don't look at my spreadsheets and think oh they've got to be incredible spreadsheets I think they need to be good enough and functional and I don't want to spend too much time on them and if I find myself getting a bit caught in some of those things that I'm not so good at I I will make a conscious effort to think right I'm going to just make sure this is good enough and then I'm just going to move on which Mm. does sometimes feel hard because we always want you know most people in my in my experience want to do a good job of everything but if we do that I think we risk just not being as brilliant as we could be yes because then you can be bogged down in something that actually just needs to be a quick and easy average thing yeah yeah and I wondered do you have a view on the power of soft skills when it comes to strengths because actually uh something that came out of this this meeting was the power and the skill of the strength even of like curation like um the ability to uh and I guess like an interior designer or uh I don't know someone that is very visual for example their skill is being able to pick this and pick this and pair it together. Or for me, it's like picking a podcast guest or yeah. picking, I don't know, like something that I want to share. That's not an obvious one, I think. Like, I don't think anyone would know that's a skill. Do you think that's certain? Oh, I think that's definitely a skill. I think it's definitely one. I, yeah, I'm less of a fan of sometimes people describe skills like soft skills or hard skills. I do, uh, I've heard the word, it's a buzzword, so I'm yeah. like, I'm going to no, it's a, good, it's a, it's a good, really good question. So I think we all have our own kind of unique combination of strengths as a starting point. And I always prefer the kind of the what and the how. Some of us have more what's, which I think are more like kind of technical skills, perhaps more specific to our discipline or our industry, depending on kind of the jobs that we do. And some of us have some hows. I would argue that curation, just the ability to kind of curate things, bring interesting people, ideas together and turn that into something is more of a how because that would be useful in lots of different contexts. So it's less specific to a role or a particular role within an organisation. And I think some people, um, their super strengths could be a mixture of what's and how's. For some people, they have more how's than they do what's. And then some people are in, have some incredible technical skills. You know, if you're an absolutely awesome coder, that's a how. Mm. And actually, that's incredibly valuable, I would argue, right now. And actually, over-investing in that is a really good thing. And I do, again, I worry sometimes that people think, oh, they need some sort of perfect combination of what's and how's. I don't. I think you need 
the right combination for you and for the things that matter to you and the things that you enjoy and where you can kind of spot yourself having um, those moments of either feeling in flow or like you've got loads of energy. I think that's a good way to kind of start to figure out what your strengths might be and kind of you at your happiness, happiest. I would imagine with something like curation, if you think back to the times where you've been doing that, you probably get a really nice kind of buzz from thinking, oh, like actually I really enjoyed that. I really feel like that's kind of me at my best. And it sort of doesn't matter whether it's soft or how, you know, or what's or how's, all those kind of things. Just embrace those things and don't be dismissive if they do feel softer. Like sometimes um, I hear people talk about their potential strengths and then straight away dismiss them. Something like, um, oh, well, I'm organised. Oh, but everyone's organised. Oh, you know, I'm quite creative, but oh, you know, I work with loads of creative people. And straight away they've sort of diminished the strength that they have. Mm. And everyone isn't organised. Everyone isn't, you know, incredible ideas. You've got to, I think, have that confidence in, oh, you know, that's actually something that's really valuable. I think that's actually the challenge often. People sometimes struggle to see the value in the softer skills more so perhaps than the harder skills. Previous boss once said to me that I was curious and I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, that's not great, is it? That basically means I'm interested in stuff. <laughs> how How is that going to be helpful? But she really, she sort of wouldn't let it go. She was like, oh no, Sarah, I think that's something you bring to every job that you do. You're really curious, you'll bring outside inspiration, more so than anyone I've worked with. And so then I had to start to really think about, okay, actually I do really enjoy that, I really enjoy being curious, I'm naturally good at it. How do I then, I guess, make that link and that build that relationship between the jobs that I'm doing and how curiosity adds value in mm. each of those jobs? And so I think sometimes you've just got to make those almost like links when they are a bit harder with like curiosity or curation, you go, okay, so curiosity, that is one of my strengths and I do enjoy it. How is it helpful in this context? How could it be helpful for this job? If you're making a decision about wanting to do something new or different and January is often the time where people think about that, think about those strengths and think, how would that be useful in what it is I would like to go and do? And don't worry about, you know, trying to do 100% of everything because I always get really worried when people look at new opportunities and think, oh, I need to be brilliant at everything listed on the job spec because job specs essentially are wish lists. Mm, true. I think no one looks at a job spec and goes, oh, I can do all of those 15 things absolutely brilliantly. The best thing you can do is look at that job spec and think, I could do those, three of those things better than most of the people. I'll be awesome at those things. And hey, I'll probably be good enough at some of the others and some I might need to learn. And that's absolutely okay. Yeah, totally. And it is a t total confidence building exercise, these things, mm. drawing out your skills and your strengths. You knowing yourself is basically a confidence boost, isn't it? Because you can walk in there and you're not saying I'm perfect, look at me, but you're, you are saying I'm really good at these things and I know I'll do a good job. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode with Sarah Ellis. Just to let you know, this is part one of my conversation with Sarah, all about squiggly careers. The second part is going live next week, and it's all about squiggly motherhood. It's Sarah's story of master plan to maternity leave and realising that sometimes you just have to ditch the plan and embrace the squiggle. That will be available across all your podcast apps next week. <laughs>